Welcome to Prima's 2020 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, we will continue the risk management response to COVID-19 discussion. Our COVID-19 webinar speakers will respond to unanswered questions submitted during the webinar and to answer questions shared via Prima Talk. Our speakers today are Jennifer Hills, Director, Office of Risk Management Services, King County, Washington. Matt Hansen, Director of Risk Management, City and County of San Francisco, California. And Marilyn Rivers, Director of Risk and Safety, Safety and Compliance Officer, City of Saratoga Springs, New York. Thank you for joining us. The first question is for Marilyn. Marilyn, is anyone using outside consultants or other experts to understand the nuances of the CARES Act or just internally reviewing the guidelines? Thank you, Shonda, and thank you for giving me the privilege of participating. I am working with a team of folks here that we call the Emergency Management Team, and we're examining all of the legal aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the financial ramifications resulting from that for our municipality. We've gotten quite a few emails from outside consultants advertising their wares. They are indicating that they are COVID-19 experts in the CARE Act. We have not acted on any of those consultant proposals. We are currently in-house utilizing the resources from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The CARES Provider Relief Fund has a portal that just came up on hhs.gov. There is a link to the CARES Provider Relief Fund and the money is available and it takes you through a step-by-step process to apply for any funds available. So at this time, we are not paying consultants as All of us across the country are looking toward our dollars and the short supply of same and the tax revenues that we've lost from our stay-at-home protocols. We have not and do not intend at this time as a small municipality to hire an outside consultant to maneuver care. Thank you, Marilyn. Next question is for Matt. Matt, are you evaluating or reevaluating your cyber coverage given the increased exposure from all the telecommuting activities? Have your organization considered banning certain software such as Zoom based on the recently discovered security deficiencies? That's a very good question and very timely as uh, we're all aware. I um, am aware of several initiatives. We're very fortunate in my entity to have had secure telecommuting practices and web services that we have available as well as VPN. We're doing things that, you know, are in line with ergonomic principles. We we have given guidance to home offices, so on and so forth. Our cybersecurity, though, we are actually in the process of renewing and enhancing our cyber coverage. So we've gotten uh, several subjectivities from the markets over this time that we're preparing responses for right now because the cyber activity in terms of breaches have increased and they've actually hit the media. You may have seen those on the Advisen release yesterday or the day before for specifically SFO. But we're enhancing it. We're making sure that the software that is being used 
is appropriate. We've also offered to reimburse employees who are using their home networks for certain uh, security protocol software and anti-breach software. So that's one of the many things that are occurring in San Francisco. Thank you so much, Matt. Next question is for Jennifer. Are many of your park and open spaces still open? How are those spaces being managed to prevent overcrowding? All of the parks in King County have been closed since Wednesday, March 25th. Our parking lots and trailhead gates are locked and our restrooms are closed. King County does not have the resources to actively enforce parks closures, so we are relying on the public's cooperation. However, we do have a regional trail network that is extensively used by mainly cyclists and joggers, and that can currently be used by essential workforce employees and for essential tasks. So we are asking individuals who use the trails for these purposes to follow social distancing guidelines and our standard trail rules and etiquette. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Next question is for Marilyn. For those employees still reporting to work, are temperature checks being conducted? If so, can you speak on that process? Sure. Here are some resources that are available to any of us that are considering doing temperature checks and bringing some folks back. I know here in Saratoga Springs, we sent as many folks home as we could to work from home to do their tasks. But as we're bringing them back and we're still in this pandemic, what we're trying to do is to develop some protocols that are meaningful, that follow HIPAA guidelines, and that make folks feel at ease and not at a pressure point. We don't want to add to a situation that's already difficult. So we are following some guidelines. We're presently putting together a policy. We're trying to put together a policy here at the city. We're following the guidelines by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC. They had developed some protocols during the 2009 H1N1 outbreak. And since that time for this COVID-19 pandemic, they have issued, reissued some updated guidance that permits each of us as employers to measure employees' body temperatures before allowing them to enter the workforce. But before any of that screening can be implemented, it needs to be examined and put out as a non-discriminatory program, right? And all the information that we would glean from taking folks' temperatures related to a specific person need to be treated as confidential medical information under the Americans with Disability Act because we want to protect the identity of those workers that may or may not exhibit a fever or other COVID-19 symptoms. We don't want to share it with everyone, right? We want to make sure that we're following all of those HIPAA guidelines. So CDC also has issued some COVID-19 specific guidance urging uh, workplaces and communities with minimal to moderate COVID-19 risk to implement some regular health checks, right? We want to make sure that all the folks that are working or asking to work are properly coming in without infecting all of us. So here's some best practices. There's five main points that we should all really follow as we are working with our employees to bring them back in a, in a comprehensive manner. We want to make sure from a best practice perspective that we're communicating clearly in advance about the workforce 
regarding temperature checks, what we intend to do, and what those implications are, right, if they exhibit any symptoms which meet the criteria of COVID-19. We want to set ahead of time amongst the folks that are doing that testing, and we want to make sure that as we're communicating to the employees that we're going to set a temperature screening threshold over which employees will not be permitted to enter the workforce if they exhibit that. And CDC right now has got a temperature range and a threshold of 100 to 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. The third thing we want to do is we want to make sure that if we're going to take somebody's temperature, we want to be as least invasive as possible. So for us here in the city, we went ahead and we were able to purchase some infrared thermometers where we can point at someone and we can read their temperature. We are not allowing anybody just to take that temperature recorder, right? We want to train that person with proper training for the correct way to not make anybody feel uncomfortable, to make sure that everybody's confidentiality is secure. So we're going to only point those folks that are going to engage in this thermometer reading. We're going to make sure they have proper training. Um, We're not quite sure yet whether we're going to have one of our paramedics do that or we are going to hire an outside firm, an RN, to be on site and to assist us. We don't have, we're a small municipality, we do not have an on-site medical administrator or a facilitator, so our medical folks are our paramedics. The fifth thing and the last thing we're going to do is we're going to continue to practice, even though we're taking the temperatures and we're sending people onward, if they pass the criteria, we want to make sure that we remind them to practice social distancing. We want to remind them that as best as we can, we've disinfected their work sites, but we also want to remind them that they should please remember to clean and disinfect their own equipment as they, you know, come on board. OSHA is another resource that you can use for the COVID-19 worker exposure and related risk. Remember, OSHA's PPE standard is 29 CFR 1910 subpart 1. With regard to respiratory protection, it's standard 29 CFR 1910.134. So we're using medical professionals when we can, but again, there's just some basic everyday criteria in addition to that temperature taking, hand hygiene, temperature, appropriate PPE, and continually practicing that. Thank you so much, Marilyn. The next question is for Jennifer. Has your public entity had success with a business interruption claim based upon COVID-19? We have not had success yet, and we're not sure we have a viable claim. King County's property insurance program provides an extension of coverage for communicable disease response and interruption from communicable disease. It covers cleanup of insured property, reputational management costs, and business interruption. Then coverage applies if there is actual presence of communicable disease and access to an insured location is limited, restricted, or prohibited by a government order. So while we did close buildings and we are serving customers remotely, we're not sure we've met the coverage triggers. The most our coverage will pay is a million dollars, regardless of the number of locations or occurrences involved. 
and then access to an insured property must be limited or restricted for at least 48 hours for coverage to apply. So we are considering it, but we have not successfully brought a claim yet. Thank you, Jennifer. Next question is from Matt. An illness must be occupational to be compensable under workers' compensation. What methods are you using to identify workplace exposure? In other words, how can an employee prove if he or she was infected at work? That's a very good question and one that is a moving target at this point. We absolutely are looking at causation and location of infection. The means and methods by which we are doing that is we're looking at each case by case and making sure that our workers' compensation division is studying the trajectory and also the target of where the contact tracing comes from. We've recently entered into a technology agreement with the University of California in San Francisco to begin that digitally, and we're uh, working through that process right now. Thank you so much, Matt. Next question is for Jennifer. What is your public reintegration plan once the crisis is over? How will the public be reintegrated and how will your workforce be reintegrated? We are currently in the planning phase and while we are seeing a decline in new COVID-19 cases, our public health officer needs to see a steady decrease in infection for two weeks, hospital capacity stabilized, and an increased ability for testing. We will likely recommend a progressive return to the workforce and a phased approach to reopening business. We are also thinking about the resources our employees are going to need to return to work. So our emergency management office is currently asking for orders for hand sanitizer, disinfecting wipes, PPE, and the like. But I'm happy to report that King County is applying an enterprise risk management approach to the reintegration plan. Our ERM program manager will be the project manager of the group focused on returning business operations to our new normal and will focus on our risk appetite and balancing risks and opportunities. Thank you, Jennifer. Next question. This one is from Maryland. What safety protocols have other cities added for Department of Public Service employees, i.e. sanitation, forestry, infrastructure, street services, water, sewer, et cetera, essential workers. I am advocating using the CDC COVID-19 protocols that they have on their website with regard to uh, workplaces. They have protocols that are on the CDC website that give criteria for disinfecting facilities, for disinfecting non-emergency vehicles, for the type of masks that should be utilized in, in certain workplaces. We here at the city have, when this started early on back in January, started sourcing hand sanitizer, Clorox wipes, Clorox sprays, masks. This week, because of the new emergency declaration by Governor Cuomo, all of our workers here in the workplace need to wear masks if they're engaging in any contact with the public. So what we decided to do was we are sourcing and supplying to each of our workers two washable reusable cloth masks. In the interim, as those are being, we've, we've had some deployed and we've given them to our DPW workers who are, who are out on the roadways because 
there's a greater indication, there's a greater indicator that they will come into contact with the public more than those that are sitting at home, working from home, or working in an administrative environment in the office. Our police and fire all have gloves that they've been wearing and they have masks that they have been given. We're also disinfecting police cars and our ambulances and our fire trucks on a weekly basis using a COVID-19 cleaning protocol from a professional service. We are doing the same with our public works vehicles. We are fortunate in that we have had that service donated to us by some emergency restoration folks. They're taking turns providing it as a service to emergency responders and essential services. By actively utilizing the NIMS emergency management structure, all of our emergency safety and health protocols are on ICS Form 208 because we have every intention of taking all the expenses that are specifically labeled COVID-19 and all of our protocols that utilize those supplies and those resources and those donations. We, on the outset, agreed to use NIMS forms, and so our 208s or our safety protocol forms We are hoping that as we put this together as a package by early on utilizing FEMA forms for all of our safety initiatives and capturing all of those safety-related costs, we'll be able to put our presentation or our submission together quicker at the end. So um, I would strongly suggest that folks go to the CDC COVID-19 website and utilize the resources that are there. They have a tremendous amount of resources for rail, for transit, for airport, for harbors, for regular businesses, and they also have the OSHA HHS guidance on preparing workplaces for COVID-19 reintegration. So please visit that website. They have videos. It's very beneficial. Thank you, Marilyn. Next question is for Matt. Have you developed policies or protocols that go beyond the public health and CDC requirements slash recommendations as to which fellow employees should be sent home to isolate for 14 days following a positive test of a coworker with whom they either had some limited contact or that they were in the same vicinity of in the office, neither of which rise to the standards of public health or CDC for mandated isolation? Such a policy or procedure would be designed to further limit the risk to employee health but also to limit the potential for longer-term loss of essential workers who may become infected, such as first responders? That's a very good question, and it's one that is timely and evolving. We have uh, specific policies and procedures in place that every employee who shows up on site, whether it's at the EOC or their regular workplace, utilize face covering. And we are supplying that face covering should they not have it. And so we're making sure that the exposure and the social distancing rules apply regardless of assignment. Our EMS workers also are, you know, being tested. We have emergency test sites, drive-through test sites available to them with rapid response through our Department of Public Health. We are following every public officer 
indication of how to make sure that we're keeping our employees safe. We have a six county wide consensus on those orders and we're immediately uh, responding to those. Back to Marilyn's question about public instruction and how we're dealing with other opportunities within the city and county of San Francisco to maintain the health order of the CDC and our local health officers. We have been more stringent and we feel that has helped us flatten our curve. So when we have enforced, which we've been lucky to be able to enforce through our municipality and through our state, these social distancing guidelines and other pieces, we're taking that pretty seriously. And our first responders are first in line for any testing, any PPE that we have available, and anything else that we can do to help protect them in this time of pandemic. We're making sure that they are the ones who are prioritized for whatever equipment we can receive through our EOC. All of our purchasing has been centralized to our emergency operations center through the logistics division, and it is going through there 100% so that we can make sure that we have a good idea of who needs what and when do they need it and how can we prioritize it. Yeah, I just want to capitalize on what Matt just said. It's really important for all of us as risk managers across the country to prioritize those essential services for boots-on-the-ground folks that are dealing one-on-one in responding to this emergency. So police, EMTs, paramedics, fire, all of social service workers, any other healthcare workers, whatever they need from PPE, perspective or any other supplies that may, you know, result from their work, whether it be lodging or food or any special circumstance, we place that as a priority because those are the folks that are keeping us all safe. So Matt raises an extremely important point that first response, those first responders, and, and if you have safety officers or code enforcement officers that are also assisting or building in engineering, those folks are going out because they're still trying to maintain essential services like water and sewer, your utility people. Those are the folks that you want to be absolutely positively sure that all of their needs are being met, including their mental health um, supportive needs. That's a great point, Marilyn. And, and we've also expanded our employee assistance program for that purpose. The other thing that we have done in San Francisco is we have secured 8,000 hotel rooms for first responders and medical professionals through our Department of Public Health. And that way they can completely feel safe that they're social distancing from their families while they're performing those essential services. Thank you both so much, Matt and Marilyn. The next question is for Jennifer. Just a thought, as non-essential TWP services resume in certain parts of the U.S., do you have any practical guidance regarding social distancing and a municipal vehicle? Our refuse division, for example, is currently an essential service. Each is a three-man crew, a driver, and two collectors. And while the collectors ride on the rear step during most of their routes, on certain roads, they sit side and side by side in the cabin. 
The parks division was considered a non-essential, but the parks maintenance men will be back to work on the same expanded capacity. They operate as two-man crews as they transport to their work location. Any thoughts? Yes, this question appears to be from the perspective of a route hauler servicing residential and business accounts where a team of employees works off a single truck. King County doesn't do curbside collection work, and for the most part, we don't have operational teams working in close quarters. During this pandemic, we've restructured virtually all business activities to enable social distancing for employees and customers. But I will say in some cases, our two-person maintenance crews are using personal vehicles rather than county vehicles to maintain social distancing. And then some other examples from our solid waste transfer stations include staggered use of self-haul lanes to keep customers further apart as they unload at our transfer stations, the installation of clear plastic shields at scale houses to provide a further barrier between the scale operators and customers, and finally, the creative use of fish nets on poles to extend the reach of scale operators if they're exchanging materials with the customer. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Next question is from Marilyn. Have you had a conversation about enacting a curfew to help flatten the curve? If you've had a curfew in place, what hours are you enforcing? Who is enforcing? Lastly, in what unique ways is your organization utilizing risk management during the COVID-19 response? So we have not here in our municipality enacted a curfew to help flatten the curve. We are seeing that our population and our community is staying home and staying in. All of our bars, our restaurants, they're all closed. If they are providing takeout, they are limiting their hours here in New York. The governor set it at 8 p.m. So everything is shutting down at 8 p.m. Most of our supermarkets are also shutting down for that time period where we might have had 24-hour supermarkets in the past. Generally, everyone is accepting the 8 p.m. as a time to go home. What we are doing in support of our Pause New York and our social distancing campaign is we're using a tremendous amount of social media to make it positive to stay home, to create or to remind folks of a family atmosphere. We have seen increased incidences of domestic violence because of our social you know, our social quarantine, so to speak. What we've tried to do to try and calm the masses is we are fortunate enough in the fact that we utilize horses in our law enforcement program. We each day visit, we have two officers take the horses out into each of the neighborhoods on a rotating basis. We use social media to announce when those horses are going out, and we're finding that people come out on their porches, and what the officers have done with regard to Pause New York and social distancing, we have the six-foot rule, is they're showing folks the distance between the two horses from a six-foot perspective. They're trying to bring folks in to, you know, into the fold of the community spirit. But as they're going out and they're checking and these folks are coming out on their porch and talking to the officers, we are practicing a form of, um, you know, community policing and checking on all of those folks. We're asking as we're going into each of these neighborhoods, and we're fortunate, again, we're a small municipality. 
we're going into the neighborhoods and asking if anybody needs assistance and then we, you know, make sure that assistance is given. We're checking on seniors. We have a compromised population that has health issues that we check on. So from a risk management perspective, we're again, and, and I've said it, because we're smaller, our risk and safety is intertwined, right? We never think of risk and we never think of safety as two separate instances. So as we've been deploying for COVID-19 for our, our response from a city perspective, and um, I've been dealing with quite a few nonprofits in, in intertwining myself with them on a more frequent basis than I usually do, we are reminding them that you know, to stay safe, to practice all of these CDC measures. But we're also talking to them about managing the risk today and, the, again, the, short, the short-term issues, but also the long-term economic and social issues as we find our new normal. So I, I would say that from a risk management perspective, it doesn't end, right? Laws and Laws may be somewhat stretched, There may be some new declarations, but our existing structures are still there, and we need to remind folks in a really gentle way that we're still here for them. I applaud that and agree 100%. Just to add to it from the San Francisco perspective, you mentioned a topic that is near and dear about domestic abuse. We have instituted, and this is a technology solution, a text to 911 situation so that anybody who's in distress does not have to make a physical phone call. It can be a text. Yeah, I just want to point, uh, add to what Matt's saying, too. We've, we've developed, again, when we, we say, and I, know, I noticed it's been on the news, too, for supermarkets, because of the increased stress levels at supermarkets, at uh, pharmacies, there are certain code words, right, in addition to those texts that if someone's going in, they can use. So help is readily available from multiple sources because we realize everything's heightened, right? And it, it's it's hard to be what we're doing what we're doing right now. So um, Matt's got a great idea, and and you know it, it's important for all of us to be creative. Thank you so much, Marilyn Matt. The next question is for you, Matt. I'm working on creating a report form specifically for work-related COVID-19 exposures for fire, EMS, and police. What guidance are you giving to these employees in regards to possible work-related exposures? We are absolutely doing the minute-by-minute debriefings with our first responders and employees. Our Department of Public Health and our health officers have a protocol, and again, it goes back to testing and temperature testing and so forth, that will be instituted or has been instituted actually for anybody coming on site, and especially if there is a track and change system that we're developing with University of California, San Francisco, a medical center on how we can do this tracking and how we can report on it. We don't have a form, but we do it digitally in our ability to track and manage exposure and contact. And so those contact tracking is really where we're coming to the end with this particular issue. Thank you so much, Matt. 
Thank you to all of our speakers for sharing such valuable information on this podcast. We sincerely appreciate it. Thank you to all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.